Okay, so could you just start by saying your name and what your position and affiliation is? I'm um, Lucy Kluver. I'm Professor of Child and Family Social Work at the Department of Social Policy and Intervention and here at Nuffield College. Okay, and without telling me your entire life story, mm -hmm. um, can you just give me a rough idea of how you got to where you are now and how you've developed those interests? Well, I, I trained as a social worker here at um, Oxford and um, worked in South Africa, um, where I'm originally from, and started working on research with children orphaned by HIV AIDS. Um, and that, um, that progressed to, to working um, on, on child on violence against children because those kids were, were at higher risk. Um, and, and moved towards developing with a whole set of colleagues um, these evidence-based child prevention, um, child abuse prevention programs, which um, which is what led to the COVID work. So, we were did. you both a practitioner and an academic at, at this time in, in social work, or, or were you? I tried to I tried at first to do part time of both, and it was a complete disaster because you're you're um, when you're a social worker, your clients don't have their crises um, conveniently on three days a week. Um, but I. Um, uh, you know, I think what I do now is kind of academic social work. Right, right, yes. So you mentioned that a lot of your work has been in, in HIV. So what were the issues particularly? If you just tell me a little bit more about the projects that you worked on um, with HIV. Mm, we, we, um, we did a whole set of projects on um, understanding the needs and what we could do to help children who'd lost parents and whose parents were very sick with, with HIV AIDS. And, um, and it's, you know, incredibly relevant to, to COVID because you've got this sudden, and across sub-Saharan Africa, we had this sudden wave of, of loss of caregivers um, and very unwell caregivers. And so many of the lessons that we've been thinking about for children in COVID have come from, from HIV. Um, but, but one of the things that really came out was that when a family is under enormous stress. And that happens when you have a health crisis and an economic crisis and a mental health crisis. That, um, and also when there's bereavement in the family, that um, you see rates of, of violence against children go up. Um, and actually rates against violence in the household go up. And, and, and that's even worse when you're trapped in a household together and unable to, to go out. And, and UNICEF showed 50% you know, increases in violence during lockdowns. And so what we need is evidence-based services that can reduce those risks and, and help families to deal with these incredibly stressful situations without getting to the point where they're screaming and shouting and hitting each other, which is... Um, you know, I think everyone who, who's just made it through this last two years probably um, feels closer to than we ever have before because mm -hmm. we all saw what a huge strain it was on our relationships. So let's, before we get to COVID, I'll try not to get to COVID too early. Sure. <laughs> what kinds of interventions did you develop through your work with HIV? Well, we work with very closely with WHO and UNICEF mm -hmm. and we, we continue to do so. <coughs> and really the... Um, the there are a range of interventions which help reduce family stress and reduce violence against children. But probably the um, most effective one is parenting programs. And they are, um, 
they're all pretty much the same. There's lots of different ones, but they're all pretty much the same. They're like, you know, I don't know, Purcell and Ariel, you know, uh, laundry liquids. And, um, and they, what they do is, the, the, the traditional in-based programs, they bring families together in a group for, you know, five or eight or 12 or 14 sessions. And they, um, they help families build positive relationships. So you do things like spending time, one-on-one -on -one focus time every day with your child or your teenager. And you learn about how to do problem solving with them. You know, when they, um, when they stay out late at night, how do you deal with that? How do you, how do you work out a solution that, that works with them? It teaches you about building household rules um, and managing problem behavior. How do, you, how do you manage it in non-violent but effective ways? Because that's what parents really need, actually. They need something which works, which doesn't raise the, the stress. Um, and also teaches families, particularly for adolescents, about how do, you, how do you manage the risks out in the world for them? How do you plan with a teenager to keep them safe? Um, and online risks, increasingly. Um, so we, there are these sort of sets of, of interventions and um, when we started the work in about 2012, all of the evidence-based interventions, and there were some, and there, there are some, were commercialised. So they were developed by academics and then turned into companies. Um, so they were really only available to families who could pay for that resource? Or governments oh, in I very high-income countries. Yes, that yes. So, so uh, the US, in Australia, in some parts of Europe, they were using these commercialised programmes, but they're, they're very expensive. And so for a, um, for a low-income country, it was completely impossible. And so we decided with WHO and UNICEF and our, um, colleagues in South Africa and the UK to develop and test a, a, a set of free versions, non-commercialised versions. And we spent about 10 years um, doing that. You, you have to have different ones for different age groups, um, different strategies between a two-year-old and a 17-year-old, not some, some commonalities. <laughs> um, and as we developed and tested them, they were also scaled up. So by, by the end of 2019, they were delivered in, I think, 29 countries to, to about 300,000 people. Which by, by these NGOs, these global NGOs? Um, generally by either governments or by US, US aid, um, but also by NGOs mm. and some faith-based organizations. I mean, some we didn't know about, you know, everything was free and, and available online, so you only know about the people who contact us. Um, and at the time we thought that was good, um, but then everything, you know, everything changed. Mm, mm. So this, yeah, so we've got to COVID now. So how, uh, where, can you remember when you first heard that something was going on in China and, ha you know, can you, can you, recall the stages of how you became aware that this was actually going to have a global impact and, and was mm. something that, wait, that you could step into? I think, um, I think that the, the moment where we realised it was not about the epidemic, it was lockdown. And there was really about a week when lockdowns hit across the world and it was, must have been in, at the end of February um, 2020. And 
for me, it was a realization when my, my, I had a, a one-year-old and a three-year-old at that point. And we got a, a message from the nursery saying the nursery was closing at the end of the week. And it was, I think it must have been about a Tuesday. And I woke up that morning at five o'clock in the morning with this absolute horror of thinking, how was I going to look after two children and work? Like, how was this going to be possible? And when I was a social worker, what you saw consistently, and, and of course this is reflected in, in national data, is that every time there is a, even a school holiday, you see rises in child abuse. Um, and if you look at data on Ebola, on HIV, every time there's a health emergency, you see rises in child abuse. Um, and, and we also could see that these lockdowns were going to cause economic crisis, and economic crisis leads to rises in child abuse. Also, you know, violence, uh, again, between adults and families. And I think what I realised in this, in this very um, sobering moment <laughs> was that we were going to be seeing that on a, on a global scale. Um, and that we needed, if we were going to, we had to do something and we had to do it very, very fast. And that morning, I think, I literally got up out of bed at five o'clock in the morning and wrote to colleagues at, at Oxford um, and University of Cape Town and Stellenbosch who we'd worked with on this. And then to our colleagues at WHO, at UNICEF, at USAID, at CDC, at the Global Partnership to End Violence, um, and a range of kind of partners that we'd worked with over the years on these evidence-based parenting programs, and said, you know, we have to do something now. And, and kind of uh, a... I think that email might be something the Bodleian would like to have. Gosh, I don't know where it is now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a huge chain it became, because mm. of course they all responded. I mean, amazingly, I, you know, I've never seen this speed. They all responded. By midday that day, we had a meeting. And, and I had like three days because the nursery was closing. <laughs> we had a meeting that day. We all decided we were going to convert these evidence-based programs, in-person programs, into the simplest possible digital resources and remote resources that we could do. And everyone threw in, you know, what should they look like? We said we'd do simple worksheets, USAID said, let's do public service announcements, let's do radio announcements. We thought, like, what can we do that is the simplest possible dis distillation of, of this? And then over, and, and a whole set of other partners, you know, so they brought in partners like UNODC, who we hadn't worked with before, and, um, you know, kind of key... ODC? Office for Drugs and Crime. Right, yes. So, so new partners within the UN... Um, a colleague brought in a set of faith-based partners, World Without Orphans, which is this huge global Christian network. You know, we'd never worked with faith-based partners before. And over a sort of 10 fairly horrendous days, we wrote these tip sheets, which is what we started with. And then we had inputs from every single agency, but not just every agency. So, for example, UNICEF sent to 10 teams within UNICEF, each of whom had five people in them, all of whom wrote comments and sent them back. And this was true of every agency. 
So we then had to collate this kind of mass of comments. And how many colleagues did you have working on that? It was Jamie and myself, Jamie Luckman and myself. Yeah. yeah, at that point we didn't we didn't have, it wasn't possible. Like we didn't have a team. You know, mm -hmm. we were just starting to work. And at the same time, colleagues were setting up. So we were trying to collate and in, and incorporate and adapt. There were all sorts of things we had to think about. Like, you know, if you were going to make it global, you couldn't have. Um, you couldn't have a picture of a table. Um, we had to make the people look like no one. They were blue, you know. Um, they couldn't have clothes on them. You had to um, adapt things for COVID. You couldn't say, um, when, you're, when your kids make you want to scream, take a step outside and take a deep breath, because you can't take a step outside, because a lot of places, you know, you were in your house. So we had to think, how do you deal with... with those situations where you might be in one room with 10 people. So we had to adapt. We adapted for, for some specific COVID advice as well. And all of this in this kind of crazy cycle, whilst colleagues led by Inga, Wessels and, and colleagues were setting up a kind of system. So we were getting designers to design how, it would, how these would look. We were setting up a system for delivery. You know, how do you get the resources to as many people as possible and, and track who you're getting them to mm. and, and how, they're, how they're reaching. So they could use, you used the word digital earlier, but you presumably you can't assume that people have got access. Absolutely. Access. And, yeah. and what happened was, that, and we made them open source, we made an instant decision to make it open source, which is, you know, m sort of slightly more than we'd ever done before, because open source means people can change whatever they want. And you have to trust people. But we didn't have time to have control. We had to trust people, and um, and we, at the same time, my colleagues amassed a team. You know, we diverted lots of our colleagues onto this work. They built a website in four hours. You know, it was it was it was an amazing piece of work, and um, and then they just started spreading. You know, we had them ready and starting to go out within ten days. A colleague set up translators. So we had translators from the university, from Facebook. Um, we had um, a, an Italian insurance company called Generali got, um, did a hackathon, a staff hackathon. They translated into 30 languages. Um, this faith-based network, World Without Orphans, that had people all over the world, did another 40 languages. You know, it was within two days. Mm, you know, it was mm. incredible speed. And then they had to set up a system whereby you could get the translated versions into the, into the tip sheets. So they, they were setting up digital systems for translation. I but, the, but the imagery was, as you say, but you tried to make that universal so that you only... Yeah, to, although then yeah. people started changing the imagery. Mm. So we saw, um, I mean, many of them used the, the, these kind of blue blobs, but we saw in all sorts of countries they would develop their own versions and create their own graphics and change it for what they wanted. Um, in, I think, Saudi Arabia, they put hijabs on some of the blobs. On which the we, blue blobs. Yeah, which we were amazed at because they were kind of non-gendered. <laughs> um, we didn't know how they'd managed to decide which ones were, were male and female. But, um, and, then, and then this kind of, there was just this incredible adaptation and sharing, you know, and people used them in all sorts of ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, ways that we could never have anticipated. You know, we would... And what, what about, there's just one question in my mind. I mean, presumably some of the people you wanted to reach weren't literate. 
So yes, were you, were so you able to so for that? example, in in places like um, uh, Laos and I think Cameroon, they actually put them on loudspeakers. So they they recorded them and put them on data sticks, and they plugged the data sticks into loudspeakers. And people walked up and down through the villages. People were in lockdown, so they couldn't come out of the houses, but they walked up and down through the villages, blasting out the messages. And they did that in something like 50,000 villages. Goodness me. Um, in other countries, they did re lots of radio shows. They were on national TV in places like Pakistan. In Kyrgyzstan, they made them into cartoons. And then, because they were in Russian, they managed to get them right across a whole set of Eastern European countries. <laughs> the cartoons had these very glamorous looking mothers with high heels, <laughs> which wasn't quite how, how we were experiencing it. Um, and then donors started coming in, actually, after a first couple of weeks. Um, the Oak Foundation, the Lego Foundation, the Human Safety Net Foundation came and offered support um, and just said, look, we've heard you're doing this. Can we help? And we managed to get very swift um, you know, within a couple of weeks, they'd each given us money that allowed us to continue. I think we probably couldn't have if we hadn't had that, um, which was amazing because we kind of weren't even thinking, you know. Mm. We got some money from the university. They had a COVID fund, which was incredibly helpful and quick and just allowed us to move. Um, and, then, and, and then we built a whole team. We had 30 people you know, because we had to have people with every language from every region. It was a completely global team. None of them ever met each other, you know. They would, uh, they would, it was almost impossible to have a meeting time because it was, you know, from Indonesia to, to um, you know, to, to um, Kenya. The time difference is so huge. Um, but, it, you know, it was incredible. Mm. So, and that was called the COVID-19 emergency parents, parenting response. Yeah, right. yeah, I mean, yeah. it got called lots of things. Yeah, it's just, who cares? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I, I just have to sort of document these things. And, oh, and, yeah, so I made a note that it was called the, play, they were called playful parenting responses. Is that right? Yeah. How, how important was the, the playfulness side of it? I think there's, there's some things that we realised very rapidly as we were working and engaging. And the first one was that, um, Parents, you know, traditional parenting programs focus a lot on the parent-child relationship. A parent can mean anyone looking after a child. You don't have to be your biological child. You could be a grandparent or a foster parent. Or, um, but what we realized in, in COVID was that we needed first to support parents with their own stress and mental health. And our first tip sheet was all about parents and, and all about what they could do to support their own stress. because. When you're under so much stress and pressure, you know, and people were trying to like homeschool their kids whilst working, or they'd lost their jobs, or they're, you know, desperately poor. You can't deal with, you know, you can't deal with a kid if you don't have some strategies for yourself. So parent support was kind of became very much a number one. But also to to um, to just introduce some moments of time that could be enjoyable for parents and, and children or teenagers. And, you know, we often, I think, you know, we weren't thinking about playfulness. We were thinking about, um, you know, all the horror and fear that was, was at that time. But there's this amazing evidence that shows that if you play with kids for five minutes a day, you know, 
And even the most stressed parent can probably manage five minutes in a day. You know, even if it's while you're doing the washing up together, you know, you can, you can improve relationships and outcomes. You can reduce stress and violence really substantially over time. And so we really wanted to say, you know, how can you just have some moments, but not, not, um, not in a stressful way, you know? Mm. I, I remember reading when I was, you know, and I was doing all this with two small children at home. And I can remember reading, this was months later, people were putting up, you know, like advice for parents of things to do, activities to do. And I clicked on one and it said, find six sheets of sticky back plastic. And I thought, where the hell would I find <laughs> sticky back plastic? You know, I'm like, I'm looking after two children and working full time and all the shops are shut. Like what? You know, and I just thought you've, you've got to come at it on parents level. So what, what were some of the tips that, that you did put in your resources? So they were really di mainly distilled versions of what was in these evidence-based programs. And that was actually how we were able to get all the, N all the UN agencies to endorse them, because they had already, were already endorsing these evidence-based programs. If we hadn't had 12 randomized control trials showing they were effective, they, sh they wouldn't and shouldn't have endorsed them. But things like, very simple things, like um, when you, when you, hit, when you get to a point where you want to scream, you know, and, and it can happen once a day or 50 times a day, you take a moment, turn away, and breathe in and out 10 times. And usually at that point, when you've done that, you're much less likely to, to do something you'll regret. Um, to, take, to take one minute a day for every parent and just um, do a simple breathing exercise, you know? to at the end of every day as a parent to praise yourself for something you've done well that day mm -hmm. you know rather than thinking god another terrible day how can i do this tomorrow to just take a moment and say you know it was hard but this one thing i did i did well mm -hmm. even if the one thing was i didn't scream mm -hmm. you know and what about the play aspects of it? i mean did, mm -hmm. were you, did you have specific suggestions about how play could be introduced into interaction. Yeah, you know, it's actually really simple. You don't have to get, you don't need sticky back plastic. <laughs> you know, what you need to do is for five or 10 or 20 minutes a day, you, you sit or stand or whatever with your child and you let them direct what you do. You don't have to create something, you know, a small child will, will want to do something with you show you their, their Lego or, you know, take you to look at something they've made. And an older teenager might actually not really want to interact at all, but might just want to sit with you. Um, you know, or you might, and we did have ideas, you know, but it, you know, with a teenager, you can say something like, you know, what's a country you'd like to visit? You know, and, and just, um, just have something where it's led by them. Mm, mm. Um, Teenagers tend to be a bit less, um, they show their, their enjoyment and appreciation often a lot less than, than younger children, <laughs> but that doesn't mean they're not appreciating it. Um, and sometimes with teenagers, people say, we just sat and watched TV together for 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. you know? But when you don't have, you know, when you've got so much on, parents weren't able to do that. Or the only time they were interacting was when they were trying to get kids to homeschool which is not a fun or playful interaction. It's a miserable, stressful interaction for many, you know. But, you know, we were also trying to suggest things that would work for a, 
you know, a high-income parent in Washington, D.C., right through to a, um, you know, a parent in Nigeria in a shack with 15 people. And so it's pretty hard, you know, you've got to make things very simple yes, yes. at that point. Yeah, yeah. So what, I mean, this is a question I meant to ask before we talked about the actual interventions, but um, were there specific threats to children and young people that the COVID pandemic presented that weren't just the same as um, other stresses that you've talked about earlier? I think what we learned about COVID was that it wasn't that things were new, it was that they were exacerbated. Mm. So, um, you know, that suddenly at a global level, people are experiencing economic crisis and um, incredibly challenging mental health. You know, the, uh, there's been lots of data on this, but, you know, the stress and uncertainty, the fear, the fear of contagion, the fear of death, fact there was very you know very sharply rising levels of bereavement and severe sickness mm. um, can you put a, put a figure on that um, on how many orphans were created well we we know now and I've been working with colleagues that there have been now about 10.5 million children who've lost a caregiver um, in the space of two years to COVID associated death um, but many more you know family members and parents with COVID with long COVID um, and all the stresses of trying to, to parent with that but also I think there's, you know, lockdown. And lockdown itself presented this, you know, um, huge stress. Not only are you trapped together, but you're also unable to access services yeah. that alleviate that stress. So you're not able to, um, you're not able to send your kids to school. You know, you're not able to get social services if you need them. A lot of, you know, for a lot of families, that's a, that's a break that you have um, from your kids. And is there data on the, on the extent to which children were subject to um, increases in violence and, and abuse? Yeah, UNICEF's done some really good um, evidence on this. It's hard because what you, what you see, so in many cases you saw reduced rates of report of calls to things like child lines because people didn't have privacy to make calls. So you saw this ups and downs, um, as mainly as you saw lockdowns change. But they estimate a 30 to 50% overall increase um, in, in violence against children during the lockdown period. And my colleague Jamie Luckman, who, who co-led all of this, you know, we did everything together, he did a series of um, really kind of amazing uh, pre-post studies and retrospective studies on the COVID-19 resources and found, um, you know, they're not as good as a randomised trial in evidence. We couldn't do a randomised trial, mm. but found very that the that parents reported that, that these resources really gave them very um, substantial support and that, you know, we were surprised by how strong, uh, you know, we had sort of 70% reported reduction in violence and... Um, 80-something percent reported improvements in, in parent-child relationships. And so it's probably an overestimate. Um, but at the same time, you realise that, that something, you know, parents needed something evidence-based that could get to them. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess even the fact that somebody had worried about them and produced these resources because 
they felt they needed them must have been in itself supportive. Oh, I don't know. You can't tell. <laughs> I can't tell if that was helpful or not. Yeah. Um, I'm a bit more of a fan of, of the hardcore evidence of yes. what works. <laughs> and so, I mean, it, I think your work has always been very collaborative, but would you say that this project uh, sort of increased the level of collaboration that you, you did with academic colleagues? I mean, I think traditionally academic life is regarded as quite a bit competitive and, and oh, you know, yeah. racing to get papers out, but I mean, certainly what I've heard from others is that working on COVID projects, everybody was after the same goal and, and not worrying about their ref and all the rest mm. of it. Um, I think I'm lucky, you know, we worked as a, we've been working as a big team who haven't been worrying about that for years, so I, that kind of wasn't, um, I don't, you know, I don't think that was a concern. Mm. But what it really did was s increase and strengthen our collaborations with our policy partners. Yes, and widened your networks. You talked about <coughs> organisations you hadn't worked with before. And um, and and one thing that it really led to, which has been amazing, is that. And I mean, I, I guess I should say that to set up an interagency UN partnership normally takes three years, you know, of, of careful and complex negotiations, and we did it in days. Um, had we waited two months or a month, we probably wouldn't have been able to do it at all, because by then all the agencies had set up COVID committees, which had to approve everything, and it slowed things down. But we got in before those were created. And... Um, what, what it led to, actually, was that um, a group of UN agencies have now made a formal commitment to reach families with evidence-based parenting support globally. And it's called the Global Initiative to Support Parents. And it's led to this kind of, um, you know, for the first time, a sort of formalised interagency partnership to, to take what we did during COVID and, and deliver more intensive support. That was the big feedback we got from everyone, was they said, this is great, but we actually need more. Um, you know, tips are helpful, but what we need is, we, we really need to try and deliver the more intensive programmes on a global scale. Which presumably involves being more one-to-one, -one, more, more personal interaction. Or it involves really getting good at digital yeah. versions, and we and um, and Jamie Luchman is now leading a huge, um, um, huge initiative. It's it's um, probably about twenty million pounds in total of developing these these programs into digital and hybrid kind of interventions. So you might be using an app. Um, with a parenting program, but you're also part of a WhatsApp group with other families and a facilitator and, you know, trying to work out how could we deliver them on, on the scale to which they're needed. So do you think the pandemic has, has I mean, that's obviously something that needed to happen anyway, mm. but do you think the COVID pandemic pushed it or get, gave it a higher profile? And made it easier to raise funds, for example. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, I th we never intended it when we started, but I think what happened was that suddenly, um, suddenly parenting was foremost in the minds of many people who it had not been. And we would talk with, you know, senior government ministers and, um, you know, senior people in UN agencies, particularly men, often men, um, <laughs> And we would talk to them about the, 
the work we were doing and they would say, I'm, tr I'm stuck here with my three kids and they're driving me crazy. <laughs> Can you send me the tips? <laughs> you know, and, and for many of, these, many of these people, they are not in, in daily looking after their children. You know, many of these people are in situations where, the, you know, they're not stuck with their kids 24-7 for long periods of time. And I think it, it really did raise the profile of both the stress on parents and, and what parents needed, but also um, the, the opportunities to deliver services. Mm, mm. Mm. So that's, that's all covered, yes. So you, you yourself <laughs> were at home with two small children mm. and you said you had those first three days before, before the nursery closed down. How, how, how did it go on thereafter? How did it impact on your life? Because clearly you've had masses of work to do mm. since. Then. It was pretty chaotic. <laughs> <laughs> my husband, my husband's also an academic um, at Oxford, and, and we 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 did about two months of kind of half days each, um, which was pretty pretty chaotic. And I can remember doing, I can remember once doing a big interagency meeting on Zoom. Whilst my three-year-old, my one-year-old, tipped the kitchen table over <laughs> together. <laughs> Luckily, they were both fine. But and I used to have to do things like, um, you know, clean the bathroom while I was on UNICEF calls because there were, you know, if you're looking after kids and working full time, there's no time to clean the bathroom, you know. <laughs> and I had to do the hoovering at one o'clock in the morning because my one-year-old was frightened of the Hoover. And you know, you, you were it. It was a pretty chaotic, you know, we, we just about managed. And then because of the COVID work, I was able to get key worker status. And, oh, that, and right. that, that really helped. Yes, and, yes. you know, the, the key worker scheme was pretty fundamental. Yeah. So then I was, we were able to get a bit more support, um, which took some of that, maybe the first, after the first four months. Um, but I think that was one of the most challenging things. And actually, that's something that I think, you know, I, I had a huge UKRI grant and I said to them, can I use some of my money to pay for childcare, which I could do if I was traveling. And they said, no, because you're not traveling. And I thought that was, there, was some, there were some decisions that could have been made better at that point mm -hmm. that would have really, would have really helped. But, but, you know, I think that's also the joy of working in a team that we were able to backstop each other. Mm. Mm. Um, and did you and your family feel personally threatened by the virus itself, by the, the, the risk of catching it? I think we all did, didn't we? I mean, you... Not, I've met people who say they didn't, but, but didn't. yeah, I think, I mean, I did. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, I think there was so much confusion, wasn't there? You, mm. were, you were trying to follow the rules which constantly changed and you know and I think you must have found that when every academic you speak to is not only looking at the government rules but is also looking at the data and the evidence and questioning the government rules you know so so we were looking at that um, and that you know the balance of trying to keep your children safe whilst also not leaving them as anxious messes you know and, and that's a real challenge my one-year-old loved um, licking well, anything really, and he would lick the bollards in the street outside our house, and just think, God, you know. 
Um, but but also, what kind of, you know, I was always having to think as well, what kind of advice do we give people that, that can, um, that is feasible, you know, feasible for parents? And, and I think you have to be realistic. Mm, mm. Um, about about what you can do and I you know I don't know it's easy with hindsight <laughs> to say what we should or shouldn't have done mm, mm. I think we all did the best we could um, but you know things I think things that were a real challenge were things like how do you you know kids need exercise they need to run around how do you do that in lockdown conditions you know and we, we Joe Wilkes <laughs> yes, Wix. Yeah, Wix. of course. And it, if, if you're in the UK and you have an internet connection, that's right. Um, and if you're in, um, you know, the Philippines or um, or Ghana, you know, what do you do? And we, we had advice like, you know, everyone walks around their room, you know, ten times a day, and you know, can you like games that you could play that just got some energy out? Really, a huge challenge. And did you, do you think that um, the fact that you were working on something that was going to help parents through the pandemic helped to support your own well-being? I mean, a lot of people, as you say, were stuck at home mm. and couldn't do whatever it was they normally did. Um, and so in some sense, I suppose, lost that sense of agency that is part of well-being. I don't know. I didn't think about it. I didn't have time. <laughs> <laughs> No, no. Um, you know, we but by, by, you know, by a couple of months in, we were running a you know a massive program of of work and and research and, um, and we were also starting to develop these digital programs, you know, which we rapidly realised we needed. Mm. So it was yeah, I didn't have time. And were you exhausted? I mean, did, did, did I think every parent was exhausted. <laughs> I had, a, I had a colleague actually um, who has five children and we used to, you know, we used to go to university parks every day and walk around the parks and I used to see them with their five children and I used to just think, okay, I can't complain when <laughs> they have five, I only had two. So has the experience um, of working on COVID changed your attitude or your approach to your work and, and how would you like to see things change in the future? It definitely has in several ways. I mean, one way is that, you know, before COVID, I was only working in Africa. And, you know, then suddenly we were doing something absolutely global. And even, I mean, I would never thought I would never work in a high-income country. But, you know, 33, 34 governments used our programs as part of their national COVID responses. And, you know, so we were working with... with all sorts of, you know, you know, all sorts of governments, anyone who needed or wanted it, you know, we were working with, and that was very different. And it really made me think for the first time, you know, can we do something global? You know, I hadn't thought on that scale before. But, you know, at the point where, by the time we sort of stopped counting, which was probably about six months ago. And what had you... Um, do you have these figures in your head? It's rather unfair to ask mm. for figures. I can never remember numbers, but the numbers are on your website. But can you remember the, the, the reach, the ultimate reach? The, the global reach, we did a low estimate and a high estimate, and, and you, um, we followed some guidelines about not risk, sort of avoiding risk of double counting. But the low estimate was about 210 million families. 
Now, there are 2 billion children in the world. So it's, a, it's reasonably likely that we reach 10%, one in 10 children in the world, probably more because you tend to have more than one child in a family. And at that point, you start thinking, if the need and demand is that great, then something which we had been thinking about, you know, in January 2020, we were thinking about reaching hundreds of thousands. And you start thinking, okay, can we start thinking about hundreds of millions? And that is a step change. It's a real step change. Um, and it's changed our perspective as, as we move forward. I still mainly care about Africa, but I'm willing to concede. Um, and, and Jamie in particular has led this, like so much work in, in Europe and Eastern Europe and in Asia and, and Francis Gardner as well. Really, I think, you know, I think, I think we, there is capacity now to, to reach globally. That's fantastic. Thank you very much.